this week. Does it matter which hospitals patients return to when they're readmitted after surgery? And can music help post-operative recovery? Hello and welcome to The Rounds Table, a weekly podcast about major new research in medicine hosted online at healthydebate.ca. My name is Amol Verma. I'm a resident in internal medicine at the University of Toronto, and I am delighted to be joined today by my friend Nathan Zilbert, a surgery resident also at the University of Toronto. Hey, Nathan, how's it going? Very well, Amol. How are you doing? I am excellent. So Nathan, today you and I were talking all about uh, surgery, but a couple of broader topics that I think have wide applicability uh, and are very relevant to uh, our surgeon colleagues such as yourself. It's an exciting day for me. (laughs) I'm sure you're really excited. So uh, before we jump in, I want to plug our next week's episode for all of our internal medicine primary care listeners out there who have an interest in blood pressure control, and this may include surgeons as well. I was going to say that sounds like a slightly less interesting day for me, but uh, I'll be sure to tune in. Yeah, well, it's it's a possible seismic shift in the way we practice medicine, which was the uh, widely publicized SPRINT study about blood pressure control. So in case you haven't had a chance to read it or listen to uh, much commentary about the study, or if you just want to hear more next week, we're going to be doing an an entire episode on uh, possibly paradigm shifting new advances in blood pressure control. All right. So uh, why don't we dive right in, Nathan? We're going to start by talking about uh, readmission location after surgery. This paper from The Lancet looked at Uh, readmission after surgery and tried to determine whether going to a different hospital rather than the one uh, where the surgery occurred would have a difference on mortality. And they actually showed that going to a hospital different from the one where the surgery was performed did result in increased rates of mortality. Can you believe that, Amol? I can believe that. That's interesting and striking and important, I would argue. So let's not... uh... Uh, short change this as being any less important than our blood pressure conversation from next week. So Nathan, tell me why you wanted to talk about this study. So I think that this is a, is a topical paper because it uh, certainly is our experience working in Toronto where we have a lot of patients traveling uh, from different communities uh, for, for major operations. And there's certainly been an effort to reorganize surgical care in a lot of jurisdictions so that major surgery that is specialized and perhaps complicated uh, is performed uh, in specialized centers. And there's lots of data that's shown why these high-volume centers uh, have better short-term outcomes. But one of the challenges that comes with that is that when patients leave hospital and perhaps develop some, you know, sometimes anticipated, sometimes unanticipated issues, they need to return to medical attention. And again, you know, I, I see this in my own practice they often, for practical reasons, end up at least first going to an, to another center where they may not have uh, all the information or expertise to look after them. And so this paper tried to, uh, you know, explore that question in detail with uh, administrative uh, American data from uh, Medicare admissions. Okay, so let's get into it. Tell me about the methods. So they uh, looked at admissions uh, and then 90-day 
uh, mortality following those patients who were readmitted after major surgery uh, within American uh, Medicare uh, admissions. So they looked at about 9.5 million people, so a huge number of patients. And they looked at 12 types of major surgery within vascular, general, orthopedic, and uh, neurosurgical procedures. And they were able to do a lot of uh, adjustments based on all the information they had on these patients from Medicare databases about uh, teaching hospital versus not, small communities versus larger communities, rural versus urban. I think I said Earl and Ruben. (laughs) You know what I mean. I hear you. And uh, and they and they uh, their main outcome of interest was ninety day mortality, and their main exposure was whether uh, the patient returned to the index hospital or a different hospital from where their original surgery was performed. Okay. Uh, and what were the the years that they that they analyzed these for these patients? So this is a large retrospective cohort study. It sounds like. Yes, and their uh, period of retrospection was uh, from 2001 to 2011. Okay, so like 10 years of data. That's right. Uh, and you said for 12 specific surgical procedures, and I guess maybe I'll ask you now, were these procedures mostly highly specialized procedures? So you mentioned sort of centers of excellence. So is that what we're talking about here? Or are we also talking about more routine procedures? So there was a mix, I'd say. Uh, so, I, I mean, the procedures that they included were uh, abdominal aortic aneurysm repair, uh, lower extremity vascular bypass procedures, coronary artery bypass grafts, esophagectomies, and pancreatectomies, and then uh, a general craniotomy uh, procedure code. So I would group all of those into, you know, highly specialized, not routinely performed at the average community hospital type of procedure. And then there are other procedures that they included, cholecystectomy, colon resection, hip and knee replacements. These are more common operations that be, would be performed. I shouldn't say community hospital, but smaller hospitals. So, you know, any hospital with an operating room is probably doing hernia repairs and cholecystectomies, but most hospitals are not doing esophagectomies and, and cabbages. Okay, interesting. And so the real question is whether when people are readmitted to the same hospital where their surgery was or to a different hospital, uh, what the difference was in mortality. That was their primary outcome, right? That's right. Okay, that makes sense. So uh, tell me, what were the findings? So readmission to the index hospital was associated with a 26% lower risk of 90-day mortality than readmission to the non-index hospital. That's a, That seems like a pretty big difference. That's, the that's I guess, the relative difference, uh, 26%. And I guess that's around the readmission rate of 13%, right? That's right, ranging between 5 and 21, depending on the operation. Right. So they were able to show that there were some differences depending on whether the surgeons, the, the surgical patients were coming back with medical complications versus surgical complications. The effect was, was more pronounced if the patient had a surgical complication. And again, I think that makes sense. If someone has an arrhythmia or pulmonary embolism, maybe that's as well looked after at their nearest hospital than if they have a complication that would be unique to their esophagectomy. So I think that intuitively does make uh, some sense. They were also able to show, they were able to link these uh, you know records to who their main provider was. So even if they went to their index hospital, but they were looked after by a, a different surgeon, that was not as good as if they were looked after by their same surgeon. So that was an interesting finding too. But Nevertheless, this, uh, this uh, regardless of what type of complication they had, uh, 
the outcomes were better if they went to the hospital where they were operated on. Interesting. And what about uh, what type of procedure they had? So the effect was seen for all of the procedures, but it was strongest for pancreatectomy and also for aortobifemoral bypass, which is a, a uh, operation done for uh, iliac uh, atherosclerosis. So the super highly specialized surgeries. Yeah, I would I would include both of those as highly specialized operations. I mean, esophagectomy, cabbage would would be uh, would be in that category as well. And what about for the more common surgeries? Because so let me just I'll, I'll just say right here. So I think it's not surprising that for the very specialized surgeries, you know, if you're cared for at the center that did your procedure where there's a lot of expertise, you have better outcomes. That's not particularly surprising. Um, but what about for the common procedures? Yeah. So for cholecystectomy, they they had a couple of different ways that they analyzed their data. So for cholecystectomy, the 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 reductions were between three and 17%. For orthopedic procedures, they were between six and 18% for hips and uh, up to 21% for knees. For colon resections, up to 25%. So, uh, you know, I think they've had this effect uh, preserved for all of their procedures. It was just uh, greatest for those two that I mentioned, pancreatectomy and aortobifemoral bypass. So uh, what do you think about uh, these results? So, I mean, I think as you said, the fact that someone with an esophagectomy developing, uh, let's say, an asthmatic leak after their esophagectomy would get better care at the site that they were operating on is not a huge shock. But to be able to, uh, you know, quantify that, I think it is, is valuable as we try to come up with strategies recognizing that there is a, a short-term benefit to having your surgery performed at a, at a center of excellence that might justify travel, but what happens when you when you go home? You know, to me, the highly specialized surgical centers thing is almost less interesting because it's a little bit obvious and there's not that much you can do about it. Although I think the points you raise are, are, are good, that there are different models to try to sort of extend the reach of the specialized center to improve access and... Well, I mean, no, I, I think there's lots you can do about it. I mean, you know, in some, let's say, major American healthcare networks, whether it be the VA or some private ones where they have huge geographical catchment areas and, you know, shared medical records, shared access to imaging, and essentially are all part of one hospital network. I think that's very different than what we experience in Ontario, where every hospital, you know, is uh, is an independent entity. But I guess... Sure. Uh, But I guess this is Medicare data. So it's also talking about people in those large integrated systems, right? Yeah, it doesn't it doesn't uh, break down uh, people who are looked after in a system like that and those who are not. Right. So it's a bit hard to, to necessarily say that's the issue. But I agree with you, like it's an argument for increased integration. But to me, actually, this is beyond integration if we really take these results at face value, it's about having patients go back to the hospital where they had their care. And so you have two choices. Either care continues to be delivered in highly specialized centers and patients should go back to that center if possible. Um, or you decentralize the delivery of, of surgical services. Um, but that, you know, that, I think both of those pose challenges that in some ways are not always 
uh, surmountable. And then I guess regarding some of the, the less complex procedures, so why is it that someone's having their cholecystectomy at one place, but when they're unwell a week later is going to another hospital, presumably they're traveling further from their home to go get their knee fixed, their hernia repaired, or their gallbladder removed than they maybe have to for you know just pure geographical convenience for other reasons. And then, you know, what are the consequences of that decision when they're unwell in the middle of the night a week later? It seems like the consequences are uh, significant. Yeah, absolutely. So there's, a, I guess, like a patient education thing. And then perhaps you could imagine some, you know, system level interventions where you really prioritize getting people back to the hospital where they provided care if possible, uh, where their surgery was done. And then the last, I guess the, the other thing that springs to my mind is this point about people who live farther from surgical centers. And are we just picking up with this study issues with people who live farther away and therefore only have access to smaller hospitals and that it's really about inequalities, like geographic inequalities in care? So like I said, they did uh, include distance from hospital as one of the things that they tried to control for. Uh, So... I, I think you know they they attempted to address that in their analysis, but but I but I you know I, I agree with you, and I don't know that they're being you know discriminated against as much as it's just probably in in many ways there is some hazard you know the further away you are from uh, from a, a medical center that can provide the most comprehensive care. Yeah, for sure. Uh, if you live alone in the woods and you get uh, an MI, right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, you know that's. Uh, You've made that. You've made a. You've made a choice. Yeah. Uh, so, is it fair to say that this is an unsurprising but I- impressive and strong piece of evidence in support of better continuity of care and integration of services? Yeah, and I think we've just in our you know little chit chat we've highlighted some opportunities at sort of higher level you know policy areas. So, why don't you wrap up and tell us what are the major takeaway points from this study? Sure. So this study showed that when post-operative patients are readmitted to hospital, that there is a overall, a broad spectrum of procedures, a 26% uh, reduction in 90-day mortality when they go back to their index hospital, and that this effect was seen from procedures ranging from esophagectomy and pancreas resections to ventral hernia repairs and cholecystectomies. All right, great. Thanks, Nathan. Uh, Why don't we change gears somewhat? Uh, change the tune change the tune nailed it i think we came up with the title for this week's episode changing the tune all right i want to talk about a systematic review and meta-analysis published in the lancet that showed that music when used perioperatively helps improve patient outcomes like pain anxiety use of analgesic medication and patient satisfaction wow so that certainly sounds like a uh like a great finding. So talk to me about what they mean by uh, perioperative. Talk to me about what they mean by music. Tell me, tell me yeah, more. Yeah, so I will tell you more. So what we mean by perioperative and music is basically the use of any kind of music. So this uh, meta-analysis and systematic review used very broad definitions. So they included any type of music that was delivered to the patient, either through headphones, through pillow speakers through overhead speakers but some kind of music being delivered to the patient and in the case of loudspeakers 
Uh, also, I, I guess the medical team and other people in the area were experiencing the music as well. And they included any type of surgical procedure from procedures as minor as endoscopy to transplant surgery. So very broad definitions for the types of studies that were included in this uh, systematic review and meta-analysis. Okay, and uh, so I mean, I guess what were the what were the common what were the common linkages? I guess between all the different studies, or or how did they uh, break them up for uh, the analysis? Did they break them up and show different effects for post-operative or intraoperative? Different types of cases, inpatient, outpatient. Yeah. So, so one of the I think strengths of this study is that they uh, examined a variety of different patient subgroups and procedural subgroups, and you know one of the most interesting things actually I think that I learned through reading this study is actually that there's a long history of music being used to help people recover or undergo surgery and i think i guess that's not surprising because we you know music is obviously sort of soothing and therapeutic in many ways um but one of the cool things was a reference in this paper that i tracked down so the first report of music being used in surgery in the united states was described by a surgeon named evan kane in this amazing letter that he sent to jama in 1914 and nathan if you will permit me i would like to read from this letter because i think it's super interesting Permission granted. Okay. So here's the here's some quotes. For some time, I have been employing a phonograph in my operating room as a means of calming and distracting my patients during operations performed partially or entirely with local anesthesia. The phonograph talks, sings, or plays on and fills the ears of the perturbed patient with agreeable sounds and his mind with other thoughts than that of his present danger. Too often, when told to keep up an agreeable conversation with our patients operated on under local anesthetic, the assistants merely ask again and again if the sufferer is being hurt or if he feels any pain, thus only adding to the self-consciousness of the patient. And, after whether commonplaces are exhausted... It seems impossible to find a topic for conversation. <laughs> That's amazing. Isn't it great? It's just amazing to imagine uh, a, an operating room in which, you know, one of the main jobs of the surgeon and like their assistants was to sort of talk the patient through the procedure. Uh, well, I mean, I think that wouldn't be so different necessarily than procedures performed under local anesthesia now. Do you find yourself ever running out of topics to discuss when weather runs out? Well, and I, I, I think, uh, I, I think his point of, you know, the the only thing you say to them is, "Are you okay? Do you feel that?" Uh, I think certainly uh, rings true. Yeah, I, you know, I was thinking about that. So just yesterday, in the inpatient ward, we had a patient who had severe chest pain, and basically, we're you know, we're standing by the bedside, and you're squirting nitro in this person's mouth, and you're repeating your ECGs, and you're doing the whole thing. And all you keep asking the patient is, "Are you okay? How's your pain? How's your pain now? How's your pain now? How's your pain now? Is it better? Do you what other symptoms do you have?" I was just thinking, like, if I was the patient, that's like incredibly unhelpful. And actually, at one point, the patient became so sick of us 
um, <laughs> that he said, I feel fine. Can you leave me alone? Please, please yeah. leave. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, you know, we, we laugh at our own absurdity, but not at the patient suffering, obviously. But it's kind of, uh, yeah, I think it brings up a really interesting point. Okay. So with that little aside... There's actually a pretty large body of evidence investigating music in the context of recovery from various procedures, and this study focused on operative procedures. So these authors included adults, as I mentioned, undergoing any surgical procedure, which could have included sedation or anesthesia, but not necessarily. And they included surgery on any part of the body except neurological central nervous system or head and neck surgeries because of the potential for hearing impairment associated with those procedures. They included any form of music and they assessed a variety of outcomes reported in these studies up to six weeks after the surgery. So did they find any differences in the type of music? Is it matter whether this is, you know, the surgeon's choice of heavy metal when the patient's asleep versus classical music versus folk music any any patterns like that emerge in the analysis yeah so here here's what they found and I'll, I'll talk about the different patterns for sure so let's start with what they found overall so they included 73 randomized control trials and the trials varied a lot in size and in quality uh, between you know the smallest study included 20 patients and the largest study included 458 patients and I mentioned that the procedures ranged a lot in, in the severity, but most of the procedures included in these studies were elective procedures. Uh, music was delivered either via headphones, pillow speakers, or loudspeakers, and music could be delivered before, during, or after the surgery, or any combination. And they found that uh, music was associated with a reduction in postoperative pain, when compared with no music, the people who listened to music uh, reported, on average, less pain. So if you imagine a 100 millimeter visual analog pain scale, so rate your pain out of 100, the people who heard music had 23 fewer millimeters of pain, so 23% less pain. That's a lot of millimeters. Which is a lot of millimeters. Um, they had uh, uh, reduced anxiety, reduced by six units on um, one of the scales, like a standardized anxiety index uh, ranges between 20 to 80 points. So six out of that range. It also reduced the use of analgesics and increased patient satisfaction. So those are the main outcomes. Basically, it improves most subjective experiences of the patient. Wow. So uh, I guess one question I would have is, uh, especially for the post-operative music, you know, any difference between one of these models where it's loudspeakers or pillow speakers playing music that uh, maybe the patient doesn't choose versus a uh, patient choosing their own music? Or was it always music chosen by the investigators? Yeah. So I think the main, so you, so there's a, you, you mentioned, I think a few questions. You really want to know the differences between all the subtypes um, and so the main difference is that if the patient chooses the music, they tend to have a better response than patients who don't choose the music, although patients who don't choose the music still do better than patients who didn't listen to any music. In terms of you asked about sort of uh, uh, whether there was a difference in the type of music, they weren't able to comment on that in this study. Whether there was a difference in 
when the music was played. So when music was played before the surgery, uh, it was a, it was slightly more effective. Then the next most effective is when music was played intraoperatively, and then the last most effective is when music was p- played postoperatively. But I think those findings need to be interpreted with a lot of caution because there's a lot of uh, heterogeneity between the studies. What do you well? What do you think about that finding? I think it's super counterintuitive. Uh, that I guess it would depend on what percentage of their uh, of their patients were sort of ambulatory surgery patients. Because I would think maybe, you know, if you had uh, ambulatory surgery patients, maybe there's some preconditioned relaxation that might just make your whole, you know, short stay in the hospital better. But I would think that for someone who's undergoing a procedure where they're going to be in hospital for days, uh, to think that that preoperative music would have a persistent effect, that to me is a bit surprising. Yeah, I agree with you. And I think you're 100% right. Uh, and the authors do mention, so most of the people including this study are elective, uh, largely prob- day procedure kind of things. So um, you're right. So that makes more sense why preoperative has a, has a bigger effect, but there's effects seen across all times. Uh, and they also say that music has does have an effect even when the patient is under general anesthetic, suggesting that there's something you know subconscious going on, but it has a greater effect when patients are conscious. Makes sense to me. You know, there's a systematic review of 14 randomized trials in mechanically ventilated patients showing that listening to music reduces anxiety. Uh, there's basically all sorts of evidence about the effect of music on physiology and reducing heart rate, respiratory rate, even blood pressure, some stuff around patients with MIs. I I think it's really interesting. The authors of this study basically argue very strongly that we have strong evidence that music is helpful. We should therefore be systematically providing it to our patients. Um, I have a hard time arguing against that. Yeah, me too. And you, and, and you know, you, you can imagine, I think, Something as simple as some light, you know, elevator music in the in the preoperative, you know, holding area where the patients are getting ready. Like that would be something easy to do. Relaxing spa sounds. Yeah, uh, rolling waves and <laughs> things like that. I mean, but I mean, I think the point is, it doesn't even have to be like that. It could be the radio, right? Or it could be, you know, uh, pretty generic, you know, low volume music, right? Right. And, you know, in the operating room, it's a little bit different. Some people, some, you know, attending surgeons prohibit music in the, in the EOR because of their own concentration. And, you know, it's also hard to argue when someone says that. A hundred percent, I agree. Particularly as a trainee. <laughs> yes. Uh, and then, you know, postoperatively, they, they give out uh, iPads on airplanes. You know, maybe they could give it out on postoperative uh, wards for people that don't have them to be able to listen to, to music. Anything is better than the darn doctor standing there asking you how your pain are you okay? Is over are you still okay? <laughs> yeah, okay. All right. I suppose I should just make one quick methodological point, which is that it is impossible to blind or mask patients uh, to uh, whether or not they were assigned to the music or non-music group, um, and so. You know, there are some potentials for bias in this study. Um, And I'll make the other methodologic point that the results of this meta-analysis show a lot of heterogeneity between studies. So 
but that could be as a result of the fact that they included a very wide selection of studies with different you know applications of things right with inconsistent outcome measures exactly but even if this is all placebo effect from uh, you know and they and the people are just you know they feel studied and then they're being asked if they feel better I mean there's obviously I think hard to make a case that there would be any harm associated with something like this yes the authors report zero adverse events from the music <laughs> did they report intervention that? group yes they did <laughs> amazing <laughs> so okay why don't we take this as an opportunity to uh, wrap up and summarize so uh, Nathan this meta-analysis and systematic review showed that music is beneficial when delivered to patients perioperatively. Music is safe and feasible. Yes, safe and feasible. And I'll make the one small point that these were all subjective outcomes. They did look to see if there was an effect on length of stay, but very few studies reported it, and they did not Why find go an home effect. and you can stay and listen to tunes? <laughs> it could have a harmful effect on length of stay. <laughs> okay, Nathan, let's move on to our good stuff segment. Tell me. So uh, my good stuff is a open letter written by uh, David Yerlink, uh, internist and clinical pharmacologist from uh, Sunnybrook, to our new Minister of Health, Jane Philpott, uh, regarding uh, opioid drugs and uh, the challenges uh, we have in Canada and really around the world with uh, opiate addiction and uh, addiction to, pre to prescription opiates specifically. And the harm that this is causing in our society. So uh, he puts for he sort of you know describes this problem of uh, tens of thousands of people dying over uh, the past couple of decade and interventions that uh, he would suggest, such as um, you know linking pharmacies to each other and improving our ability to to quantify the effect of this, and interestingly uh, eliminating uh, uh, non-prescription codeine products from pharmacies and a variety of other ideas that. Uh, that he has that I think would, uh, you know, make our society safer with respect to this uh, particularly severe public health problem. Uh, awesome. Great recommendation. Thanks, Nathan. I am going to raise a somewhat scary good stuff recommendation, which is an article. Not all good stuffs are good. <laughs> that's right. That's a, that's a theme. Right. So an article on the BBC News website that's reporting uh, a study published in Lancet Infectious Disease about antibiotic resistance. And this article is headlined, The World is on the Cusp of a Post-Antibiotic Era. But basically, this all comes from an analysis which identified microbes in patients and livestock in China that are resistant to basically every antibiotic known to human. Uh, and Specifically, they're talking about resistance to colistin, and this resistance emerged after it was overused in farm animals and was found to be present in like 15% of raw meat samples in this specific region and in 16 patients, and that resistance had spread across a few different microbial species and that the resistance had spread to Laos and Malaysia. So it's uh, it's hard to kind of wrap your head around the idea of a drug that when you, you know you see it used in the hospital, you sort of know that this is a critically ill patient, and you have you know multiple services involved thinking about which drugs for them to be on is just being used broadly on farms. Yeah, <laughs> with uh, you know as a, as a kind of a standard, I don't even want to say treatment, just like standard part of 
agriculture use. Agree. Terrifying. Also yeah. hard to wrap your head around a world in which there's an infection for which we don't have a medication. Yeah, I mean that uh right? I mean we have, you know, we don't have to go that far back in history to to you know to to know about uh, you know, bugs that there was no drug for, but it also seems like as these bugs evolve, so do the uh, so does the science around antimicrobials. So let's let's try to be a little bit positive. This is good stuff after all. So next week, you'll be talking about hypertension and a new section called Bad Stuff. <laughs> In which we only talk about new uh, drug resistance. Depressing. <laughs> terrifying things. Awesome. Okay, Nathan. Uh, I'll talk to you soon. Looking forward to them all. Thanks a lot. The Rounds Table is hosted online by Healthy Debate. You can find us at healthydebate.ca slash theroundstable. Follow us on Twitter at roundstable. Or find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash roundstablepodcast. Thanks for listening.